Good morning, Rogers Park. I am sweating already. <laughs> I don't even, the tweet is off. The tweet is off. <laughs> Good morning, Rogers Park. Um, we have a map. My name is Phil Adams. Um, I get to serve here um, on the teaching team as one of the pastors in our network. It's a joy uh, this morning to be bringing uh, God's word to you. We are in the third week of our Advent series. So if you have a Bible there, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, I'll be reading from verses 12 to 17. Over the last three weeks or two weeks, we've been moving through the genealogy of Christ. We have looked at some of the people that God has sovereignly and graciously chosen to be part of his extended family. People like Rahab, people like Tamar, those that we would expect a holy God to exclude, he includes. People like me, people like you. We've looked at how uh, Jesus had, had royal blood streaming through his veins, reminding us that Jesus is the king. Jesus was born the king. Jesus is still the king of your life, of my life, of this whole world. And the big idea for the message this morning is that God carries the light of Christ through us, even when all we can see is darkness. God carries the light of Christ through us, even when all we can see is darkness. Let's read Matthew chapter 1 verses 12 to 17. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abed, and Abed the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations for Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. God, we bring ourselves before you today and before your word. God, we have expectancy in our hearts, God, when we come to your word that you speak. So God, may that be true this morning in our hearts. May you pierce us. God, may you um, make us aware of who you are today, of your love, of your grace, what it means that Jesus came and incarnated himself into our stories, God. God, so we might meet you and know you. May that be true today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is very common, um, I know in England, uh, to hear uh, surnames, uh, speak back to a time when the, the surname actually spoke of the family's vocation. If your surname was Smith, you were likely a family of craftsmen. If your surname was Baker, you were likely a baker. If your surname was Carpenter, your family were likely carpenters. If your surname was Gardener, your family were likely gardeners. Bacon was somebody that was a butcher. Tapper is a wine taster. I don't know if that one's made up. Weaver, Webb, Weber, and Webster were all involved in weaving. All of these surnames, they speak back to a time when society was much more collectivistic, when our identities were, were uh, tethered together much more tightly to a family line. But this is, is not so much today. There's a song that I would hear when I was growing up um, in school, and the, so the, the lines come down to two kind of, or the premise of the song comes down to two lines. 
Today is where your book begins, the rest is still unwritten. Today is where your book begins, the rest is still unwritten. If you know who wrote the song, feel free to come up at the end. I'll give you a free Bible or a gift. Um, I, did Natasha Battingfield make it over to you? Yes, I kind of hope she didn't. I, I, I don't know. Oh, she did. Oh. These, two, these two lines in the song, they connect with and they perpetuate the more common mindset that we often feel that our, our stories, they begin with us. Each of us bear the weight of responsibility to write our own history based on where you study, based on who you marry, where you live, what we do with our lives as if the world is a library and we all have the responsibility to try and get published. If I was to ask you to take out three things from your wallet or your bag or your purse or to pull up on your phone three things that, that communicated your life story, what would you show? Would you show a, a business card where you work? Would you show a, a photo of your family, your wife, your spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a college ID, where you're studying? What most of us maybe wouldn't pull out is an old black and white photo of your great, 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 great grandparents or a family tree and say, this is who I am. And yet, every year, tens of millions of Americans research their family tree, trying to piece together their place in history. Who am I? And why do they do this? Because no matter how individualistic we might be, no matter how much our default posture might be placing our importance on the here and the now, the day-to-day story we're writing with our careers and our education and our relationships, at the end of the day, when we place our heads... On the pillow, we still desire to be part of a bigger story. We want to write our individual stories into a larger story that gives us meaning, that gives our day-to-day lives meaning. At the end of the day, the question that haunts us is, are our lives tethered to anything of worth? Are our lives tethered to anything of worth? Genealogies in the Bible, like Matthew chapter 1, are important for this precise reason because that's literally what they did they tethered people to a family to a history they tethered people to a story so that people's lives were placed within a framework of importance so people could place their heads in the pillow at night and say i belong here i am part of something important because my family is important i am important because our history is important i am important and our hearts they seek the exact same thing We find meaning and importance through our work, whether it's being at the forefront of an industry that's leading the way or just being faithful and showing up every day. We find meaning and importance in our relationships as brothers and sisters, as uncles and aunts, husbands and wives, spouses, mothers and fathers. We are important because we are important to somebody. We find meaning and importance through fighting for a cause, climate change, social justice, gun control. We're important because we're fighting the good fight. And it's this tethering to importance that we see in Matthew chapter 1. But the genealogy in Matthew 1 blows all of our frameworks of importance out the window. Because Matthew 1 isn't just the history of any family. It's not just any royal bloodline. Matthew 1 is the history of the chosen people of God. They aren't the bakers. They aren't the bacons. If there ever was a family with purpose and meaning, this is them. 
If there was ever a family with a cause, this is them. Those listed in Matthew 1 are those with a God-given purpose that spans across time, chosen to be part of something great and lasting and important to present God to the world. From Abraham in verse 2, standing in the desert where God promised that through him he would make a great nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. To verse 7, we read of Solomon standing on top of his palace with his vast empire that was influencing the whole world and drawing kings and queens and world leaders to listen and to learn. Being part of Israel was being part of something at the forefront of literally changing the world. And then we get to today's passage. It was maybe touched on at the end of last week's message that after King Solomon with his vast empire, Israel as a nation, they began to crumble. King after king broke Israel apart. There was civil war mixed with idolatry and child sacrifice. Their identity as the chosen people of God looked like it was fading. And soon the Babylonians arrived with, when Jeconiah was king, who we see mentioned in verse 12. They ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They burned the city. And they dragged away in chains anyone and anything of value. The genealogy of Matthew 1 is a story made up of individuals, but as a whole it is the creation and the demise of a nation. The genealogy of Matthew 1 is the crash of an economy. It is the bankruptcy of a business. It is the bombing of a country. It is the ending of a career. It is the rejection of a family. It's the breakdown of our health. It's the failure of a ministry. It's the death of a child. It's your worst nightmare. We tether our lives to people and ideas and visions and dreams and God so that our day-to-day lives are infused with meaning. But what do we do when the purpose, the framework of importance that we have tethered our lives to is chained up and dragged away? After Jerusalem was scorched over the next 70 years, those that remained in Israel were able to cobble together an existence. A new norm was set of working in the fields and and growing vineyards, a simple life, peaceful and quiet in the shadow of what used to be. Then after an entire generation passed, a man called Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in verse 14, he returns from Babylon. And we read about this in the book of Ezra. He was the grandson of King Jeconiah, the king who was reigning when Israel fell to Babylon. And now Zerubbabel, who was born in Babylon and grew up in Babylon, his name actually means seed of Babylon, has been appointed the governor over Judah. And he is being sent back by the king of Babylon to begin the restoration and the rebuilding of the temple. So Zerubbabel returns and he is greeted by a celebration and a parade. All the wrongs are going to be made right. The torn down is going to be built up. The blind are going to see again. The lame are going to walk again. No. Zerubbabel's return was a crushing disappointment. He arrived back to a wasteland filled with corruption and poverty and a people defensive and bitter. He distrusted them. They distrusted him. And so Zerubbabel lives out the rest of his days in friction with the local people as he tries to rebuild the temple. And even when the temple is completed in Ezra chapter 6, the temple is just a shadow of its former self. 
The genealogy of Matthew is a story made up of individuals, but as a whole, it is the creation and the demise of a nation. It's the crashing of your economy. It's the bankruptcy of your business. It's the bombing of your country. It's the ending of your career. It's the rejection of your family. It's the breakdown of your health. It's the failure of your ministry. It's the death of your child. It's your worst nightmare. Rogers Park, church family, I did not make that list up. It's your stories. That list is not poetic exaggeration. It's just a list of stuff that people in this room are living through. You know, sometimes when I'm preparing a a sermon and the, the premise is pain and brokenness and waiting, I'm reluctant to keep talking. Not because there's no hope, but because I just want to acknowledge that there are no 35 minute quick fixes. There are no words to convey the weight behind what some of us go through in our lives. Darkness, it lingers, it, it moves with us. Grief, it passes from one generation to the next. Some of us carry the surnames of our family's slave owners. Pain lingers in bloodlines. This Christmas, there are those in our church whose hearts will silently ache. It will be the same silent ache that lingered last year, it will linger next year, and it will linger the year after that. Many of us walk with limps that have not healed. We've just learned to carry pressure on the pain. Whether it's a home country we cannot return to, a decision that we can't take back, an illness that's refusing to heal, a person that you miss, darkness lingers. If you take a look, At the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, after Zerubbabel, we are introduced to Zerubbabel's son, Abed, but we don't know anything about him because he's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Then his son is Azor, and he's not mentioned in the Old Testament either. In fact, from there on down, all of the names after Zerubbabel, we know nothing about them because shortly after the temple was completed, the lights go out in Israel. We enter into a 400-year period of prophetic darkness. The Old Testament ends with Israel as a shadow of its former self. But I'm fascinated by those names from verse 13 onwards. Those people that we know nothing about, Zadok and Eliezer and Akim. As they, as they lived in the shadow of a fallen kingdom, I think the most we could ask for from them would be a kind of like a holy restlessness, a holy discontentment, a kind of holy defiance to not let the darkness in as they lived amidst ruins. I know if they knew the scriptures, they would know that all hope is not gone. Because if they knew the scriptures, they would know that a Messiah has been promised that will one day come and restore their world in a way that Zerubbabel could not. But we don't really know if they are hopeful and expectant. I don't know if you're here today and you're feeling hopeful and expectant. Or if the darkness in your life has closed in on you, only you know. We don't really know about these names, but I know they must have felt left on the shelf with that history. 
in comparison to the epic stories of their past, in comparison to the epic stories of their relatives, in comparison to Abraham and King David and Solomon, they must have felt forgotten, even though they weren't. Their names are right here. They're published right here. There's a Hebrew word for hope, gaval. And it's the Hebrew word for hope that is most aligned with the idea of waiting. It's actually often translated just as wait. Because what it means is to stretch out in the mind towards a direction, towards an object. With the root of this word meaning to, to twist, to twine, as in to twist individual strands together into one. And I think it is this, this twisting of individual strands together that we see Matthew doing in this genealogy, leading us, drawing us to hope, to Jesus. There was a young man called uh, Toma. He was a, a, a bodybuilder in the former Yugoslavia. He was one of the best. He was winning tournaments and, and heading to compete on the, the world stage until he became a Christian and he, he started going to church and he felt God calling him to walk away from his athletic pursuits. Within a year, he had read the Bible cover to cover 13 times. He was sharing the gospel when he could, where he could. He started a Bible study with a group of teenagers. One of those teenagers was listening. And he would years go on to write this. Toma, with his success as an athlete, his devotion to God, his limitless appetite for learning about the Bible and everything related to it and his boundless self-confidence pulled many of us into his orbit. It isn't surprising how many of us from that relatively small group ended up in some form of Christian ministry. We became ministers and professors, administrators of academic institutions and public intellectuals. But after a decade or so, Toma, on the other hand, he fell into mental illness and for the remaining 20 years of his life lived within psychiatric wards. Telling us is... Toma's story is one of the teenage boys who went to Toma's Bible study, now sitting as, at his desk as a professor at Yale. And he says, maybe Toma's way of being somebody was truly a Christian way of being somebody, being a bow for the flight of others. And that's how I like to look at these names in Matthew's genealogy, as broken strands twisted together into a bow for the flight of others for the flight of us. Rahab, the prostitute who harbored spies and desperately tangled a red ribbon to see if her life. David, the ruddy, handsome shepherd who knew what it was like to be hated and ran out of town, who fell further into sin than seems possible for someone running after God's own heart. Ruth, the single lady scavenging over people's leftovers, seeking protection from an older man. Solomon, the wisest king who had no self-control. Zerubbabel, the governor who went to work every day facing opposition. Akim, the person nobody will ever know. All of their crazy stories tell our crazy stories, and it is through their inclusion in the family of Jesus that we know that we too can be part of the family. And if their brokenness couldn't stop God bringing hope into the world, neither can ours. In the Gospels, we read the story of Jesus gathering his disciples. He meets a few on the the, the shoreline of Lake Galilee just before they head out fishing, and he says, follow me. So they get up and they follow, they leave their nets behind and they leave their former lives and they go. 
He meets another who's collecting people's taxes, who gets up from his table of coins and he follows Jesus. Over the next three years, Jesus lives with his 12 disciples. They eat together, they travel together, they laugh together, they talk together, they cry together, they create a tight bond with Jesus, and they love Jesus. They tether their lives to him and hoped in him to see a glorious future with him. Something beautiful was created. Until one day, when Jesus, the one they had tethered their lives to, is chained up and dragged away. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, they didn't understand the darkness. As they hid in their homes, they didn't understand the ruins, why it all had to crumble. And yet out of their confusion, God turned the darkest moment in history into the most beautiful expression of love that this world has ever seen. Rogers Park in pain, in waiting, in loneliness, in restlessness, that's all I cling to. When the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, it was the same door that creaked open as Jesus was born on his first day. He brought light into darkness. To truly celebrate Christmas is an act of defiance. It's not for wimps. It takes courage. It takes guts and perseverance and determination to truly believe in a hope that can't be extinguished. In the United States, every 12 minutes, somebody chooses to end their own life, which adds up to approximately 123 people per day. And then there is one suicide for every estimated 25 attempts. Ever since um, the birth of my brother, uh, my mum has struggled with depression. She, uh, she would equate it um, to being brought up with uh, six siblings. Her is the oldest, and uh, my grandfather, an alcoholic. So uh, she would tell stories about how she would go to the pub with him and have to stop fights and bring it home, and they're usually uh, funny to me, although in her mind, uh, they were not so funny. When I was uh, in university, uh, my mom's medication stopped working, and uh, she came into my room. I was uh, studying, and she said, Phil, I don't feel well. I said, okay, <laughs> okay, went back to studying. Um, not realizing that she uh, left, left the house um, in a cloud of darkness. When we found her, she was out um, walking down the middle of the road. And uh, when we got to her, um, all she was saying was that she was sorry. In the weeks after that, I can still remember hearing her prayers of defiance as she clung to Jesus. Some, sometimes she still 
will say to me, she'll say, Phil, I just want to go to heaven. Church darkness lingers. You may not know this, but Advent, until the 15th century, Advent was celebrated as a way of remembering not Jesus' birth, but his return. In the kind of modern, secular way of deciding on what is truly historical, we decide on what is scientifically uh, normative, and therefore what's possible. Consequently, we, we remove from historical record uh, anything that we might deem a myth, anything that doesn't fit the grid or break the rules. A better explanation um, for all of our human experience is in the Bible, where it says that most of history is scientifically normative. Most of history fits the grid. It, it, it keeps the rules. But the, but the moments in time that really matter, the moments that truly define our, our story in the world, the moments that should really hold our attention are the moments when the rules are broken, when the moments are exceptional. The story of the world stands on the moments which are like pillars in history when God breaks the rules. The moment God created, the moment God incarnated, the moment God resurrected, and what we are waiting for is the next exceptional moment in world history when God will return triumphant. The New Testament is riddled with the posture of waiting. Not just during Advent, but throughout our whole lives. I sometimes think that our cultural uh, way of wanting to build and grow and do and do means that when we read our Bibles, we don't see this. The early church, they seen it. That's why they said, come, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. We're waiting. Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Titus 2, 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verse 36, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, we can immediately open the door to him. Romans 8, 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There is an unholy discontentment that can creep, creep into our lives, a bitterness, a jealousy of others, a lack of contentment in Christ, and that needs to be discerned and crushed. But I'm increasingly becoming aware of a holy discontentment that carries no shame. And therefore, it's helpful to name. A holy discontentment that acknowledges there is something wrong in the world. It's hearing the whispers of home while in exile. It's the longing for something better and more. It doesn't produce bitterness, but patience and hope and love for others. At the beginning, I asked, are our lives tethered to anything of worth? When Jesus went to the cross and he took on himself the sins of the world, he sealed within us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He sealed it within you. 
And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the same power in us that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's a bond that cannot be broken. It's a bond that cannot be untethered. The Holy Spirit is often a still, small voice. Don't be alarmed by the lack of fanfare in your life. Rest in the voice that you do hear. Rest in what God is doing. Don't worry about the volume. God can roar, but I think he humbly and graciously chooses to whisper. The Holy Spirit in us is the same power that brought light into the grave on the third day. The Holy Spirit in us is the same power that brought light into the world on Jesus' first day. It's the same power of God that carried God's promise of a Messiah through Israel's exile and through 400 years of silence. It's the same power of God that carried God's promise of Messiah through all of those names that we do not recognize. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that shone through Thomas' life. And it's the same power that defiantly shines through you. Despite the bankruptcy of your business, despite the bombing of your country, despite the ending of your career, despite the breakdown of your health. Rogers Park, God carries the light of Christ through us even when all we can see is darkness. Jesus was dragged away in chains so that we will never be. He bore our sin and shame so that we will never. He publishes our names in his story. He died to give us meaning and purpose while we wait and forevermore. The next time we actually know one of those names in the genealogy after Zerubbabel is when we get to Joseph. Although we don't really know much about Joseph when you think about it, Mary steals the show. We know it was Joseph who, alongside Mary, raised Jesus. He taught him to walk and to wash and to talk. It was Joseph who came home from work to find Jesus running into his arms. It was Joseph that spent days with Jesus teaching him the skills of carpentry and how to saw and sand and to sell. It was Joseph that made Jesus a carpenter. And I don't know if that makes Jesus' surname Carpenter. But in reading the genealogy of Matthew, it's hard to know what is more incredible. That Jesus would take people like us and make us part of his story, or he would become a part of our story. That we can tether our lives to him, or that he tethers his life to us. That he is preparing a home for us, or that right now he is at home with us. Church, God is with us, tethered to us. We are tethered to his future, and he is committed to our future. I'll close with the words of a songwriter, Andrew Peterson, and these words are a call to restless defiance in the darkness, a call to hope, but they're also a call to carry each other through. The truth in the message this morning that they are beautiful, but more beautiful are feet are the feet of those that go visit. More beautiful are the hands that pick up the phone. Who are you reaching out to this Christmas? Who are you inviting over? Are your eyes open? Are your ears open to hear what's going on in the lives of others? Be ready to listen, not to shame, not to fix but to be there in the waiting. Andrew, Andrew Peterson writes, I will hold your hand, love, as long as I can, love, through the, though the pars rise against us. 
Though your fears assail you and your body may feel you, there's a fire that burns within us. And we dream in the night of a city descending with the sun in the center and a peace unending. And we kneel in the water, the sons and the daughters, and we hold our hearts before us and we look to the distance and we raise our resistance in the face of the forces gathered against us. And we dream in the night of a king and a kingdom where joy writes the songs and the innocent will sing them. I will carry the fire for you. And we dream in the night of a feast and a wedding and the groom in his glory when the bride will be made ready. Let's pray. God, we praise you, we thank you that the incarnation, that Christmas, means that you came and you met us. It means today, God, through your spirit within us, you're meeting us. You're with us in your whisper, in your voice. God, may we hear you. May we cling to you. May we know, God, that we're tethered to you, that your future glory is tethered to our future glory, that one day we will see you and be with you, and all wrongs will be made right, all sickness will be healed. God, we look forward to that day. God, we wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.